All right, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to Luke 24, the story that was read earlier. Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. That's on page 749 if you're using the Bible that's in the seat back in front of you. Page 749, Luke 24, 13 to 35. There seemed nothing else to do, so we headed home to Emmaus. None of it made any sense. We were so confused, like our lives had been tipped upside down and all poured out in a jumble heap. We dragged along the road out of Jerusalem, step by weary step. To pass the time to try to shake the sorrow, we we talked, turning the events over and over in our minds, trying to make sense of them. Another traveler joined us on the road, and this wasn't unusual, traveling the dangerous roads of Palestine. One welcomed the safety there is in numbers. This fellow traveler was a curious fellow. He, He asked what we were talking about. Somehow having to explain it to an outsider caused the hurt to go deeper, especially an outsider who evidently had had his head in the sand for these past days. We stopped walking. We, we hung our heads. Finally, Cleopas replied, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here in these days? What things? The stranger asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, I answered. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. But the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. I shuddered again at the thought. Those words sounded so sharp out loud, so shattering, so wrenching. I forced myself to breathe and went on. But we had hoped that he was the one, the, the Messiah who was going to redeem Israel. The words hung in the air. All our hopes all our expectations for for the face of God shining on us again, for the renewal of our land and our people and our life together, for our freedom from the Romans, for a rightful heir from the line of David to sit on God's throne, making things right, judging with justice, leading us on the right path. For the glory of God shining forth, for our place in history as God's people, clean and righteous while the time of pagan dominions came to an end. But they had crucified him. Cleopas finished for me. What is more, he ventured, it's the third day since all this took place. And on top of that, some of the women in our group amazed us this morning. They, they went to the tomb early, but the tomb had been opened and his body was not there. They, they came back all hysterical, making no sense to us, babbling about seeing angels who said he was alive. Well, some of our men went to investigate and they found that the tomb was indeed empty, but they didn't see any angels or any sign of Jesus. None of it makes any sense. All this while, the stranger had been listening intently. And when we had finished, he spoke. 
How thick you are, he said. (laughs) Your hearts are so slow to believe, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He continued, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things before he entered his glory? Then he began to talk to us from the scriptures. There were so many things he said. I'll just highlight a few. He reminded us that the Messiah would be a son like his father, David. And that David suffered his way into leadership. David was misunderstood. He was envied and threatened by his father-in-law, King Saul. David was accused and was slandered until Saul finally physically attacked him, forcing David to flee from the palace for his life. After a second assassination attempt, David was forced to leave the kingdom altogether and to subsist as a fugitive out in a howling wasteland where he was hunted down like a common criminal. All of that, it turns out, was preparation for David. God used that time to drive David deep into God, to humble him, to strengthen his faith, to sharpen his focus and his commitment. It was during that time that David wrote some of his best lyrics, the Psalms. Take Psalm 22, for instance. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Many bulls surround me, roaring lions that tear their prey. Dogs surround me. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Or how about Psalm 41? All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. If David had to go through all this in in preparation for the glory of kingship, the stranger asked, why would his son, the Messiah, come to power any other way? He also pointed to the suffering of God's people that they had to endure in exile. If God's people had known such suffering, wasn't it appropriate that their king, their representative, would understand them, would be able to relate to them by experiencing their sufferings himself? And so the stranger turned our attention to Daniel 7. In that powerful vision, the beasts of this earth, the the mighty and the wicked empires, oppress one who's described as like a son of man who represents God's own people. For a time, Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, the history books tell us, are allowed to oppress God's people. And God's people suffer under the power of these empires until God renders judgment and lifts up and exalts his people over them. Wouldn't it be fitting, the stranger asked, for this people's coming king to share the same suffering with his people, before being vindicated by heaven and exalted to glory over all. Likewise, the stranger continued, Isaiah 53 speaks of a suffering servant who was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with pain. 
He was despised and held in low esteem. He seemed to be punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted. Yet he was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah continues, and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Funny, we had always taken these verses to refer to our people in exile. Times were hard. They were, they were very hard for our people. Some of our most faithful people paid dearly with their lives during those times. In fact, during the days of that terrible tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes, there were many faithful martyrs, the Maccabean martyrs, brave, faithful men and women who chose to lose their lives rather than to disown their God. History tells us that they died in the hope that their death would somehow provide life for others in some way atone for the sins of their, their people and move God to action to rescue his people from this terrible oppression. Reflecting on Isaiah 53 and the sufferings and the martyrdoms of our people, the stranger asked us, how much more should the people's rightful king, the Messiah, identify with his people and share in their sufferings? Shouldn't the people's king, the Messiah, be as faithful as those Maccabean martyrs were? Shouldn't he love his people enough and love his God enough to die on the behalf of his people so that his death could truly atone for their sins and provide the way out of their oppression? And if God's Messiah was such a loving and a courageous and a faithful king to live and to die in this way, could a just and a fair God just stand by and not act on his behalf? Of course not. God could not look on such injustice and fail to balance the scales of justice. No, God would vindicate his Messiah, raise him up, exalt him like the Son of Man of Daniel 7, and give him his kingdom forever. As Isaiah 5, 53, sorry, puts it at the end, God would surely allow him to see the light of life and be satisfied and give him a portion among the great so that he will divide the spoils with the strong. All these thoughts and many more, the stranger poured over with us from the scriptures and all too soon we had reached our village. As any good Jew, the stranger pretended to be going further, not wanting to presume on our hospitality. But night was falling and we were glad to fulfill our responsibility by insisting that he take lodging with us for the night. After all, there was something about his words, something we wanted to hold on to. After a simple dinner had been prepared, we sat down to eat, and before Cleopas could take his role as the head of the household and commence the meal, the stranger stepped in. He reached for the bread. Taking it, he gave thanks to God. He broke it, and he began to give it to us. We caught our breath. Suddenly, it became clear. Suddenly, he became clear. We could see it was Jesus. Then, just as quickly, he was gone. He simply disappeared. We looked at each other in, in amazement and, and wonder. It all made sense now. Hadn't our hearts been burning inside of us as he shared the scriptures with us, opening them up to our understanding? 
we knew what we had to do. Never mind that darkness was falling. Never mind the dangers of night travel or the long journey. We had to get back to Jerusalem, back to, to our people, to his people, to the new family of the Messiah, our new home, the community of the living Jesus. As we look back on this amazing experience, you're probably wondering what we learned. A few things, I'll mention three. First, it's a journey. Coming to recognize and trust in the living Jesus is definitely a journey. A road to Emmaus, you could say. We didn't get it right away, and, and, and that was okay. In fact, in our case, we were traveling the wrong direction in order to discover that we needed to turn around and head back the right way. But it was okay because Jesus was content to walk alongside of us long before we even realized it was him. Funny, we had all the facts right in front of us, but we couldn't see what they added up to. We had known Jesus, his teaching, his miracles, the, the regal power and authority that exuded from his life. It was all adding up. He must be the Messiah, the coming one. That's what we had figured. But, but then, then he had been crucified and we were devastated. We thought he was the Messiah, but, but then he had been crucified. So no, he could not be the Messiah. Who was he then? A prophet rejected and oppressed by God's enemies? Maybe a prophet, but, but not the Messiah. No, the Messiah would be victorious, would, would rule with might and strength, vanquishing all of our enemies. But Jesus turned out to be weak. He, he had failed so what now? We didn't know where to turn. But then three days later, the tomb was empty. Had someone stolen the body? Tomb robbers? His enemies perhaps trying to dishonor his memory? The women said they had seen angels claiming he was alive, but that was crazy, probably delusions. None of it made any sense. We had all the pieces, but but we couldn't put them together. So we were headed in the wrong direction. Yet Jesus came and walked beside us on our journey. He came and taught us in the disguise of an ordinary stranger. He told us we were thick and slow of heart. He showed us that our problem was not just a head problem, it was a heart problem. The spiritual journey has an intellectual element to be sure, and the facts are important, but they're not enough. Because the journey to the risen Jesus is very much a heart journey. We won't believe in our minds what we aren't willing to believe in our hearts. For Cleopas and me and the other disciples, the problem in our hearts was obvious. We weren't willing to accept a Messiah who was crucified. I mean, a crucified Messiah turns everything upside down. What good is a crucified Messiah to anybody? 
What kind of kingdom do you have if, if the king is, is a weak, defeated failure? And if their king gets crucified, what does that mean for the subjects of his kingdom? No, we couldn't follow one who, who set the, this kind of example, who led in this way, who expected us to take up our crosses too. We weren't willing to believe in that kind of Messiah. We had suffered enough already. Of course, a crucified Messiah wasn't the only thing that was hard for us to accept. The resurrection was also hard, something we were totally unprepared for. I know Jesus had told us ahead of time, but you couldn't expect us to take him seriously. I mean, we live every day in the ordinary. We're so used to the way that things are supposed to happen. When that once-in-a-lifetime moment happens and God breaks in in a new way, we, we can hardly believe it's real. It was all too much to take in, to, to accept, to believe. It's a heart journey, and our hearts were not up for the trip. And yet, he walked with us, and, and he taught our hearts, slow hearts that they were, it's also a journey open to ordinary people. And we were just ordinary people from Emmaus. Amazing that Jesus didn't show himself to Peter first, or to James or John or any of his top 12 men. No, the women were the first to be told that Jesus was alive. Of course, as usual, no one believed them. We had a lot to learn. And then Jesus came to us, ordinary disciples. Surely this business of faith is not a matter of learning or privilege or status or honor. It's open to us all if our hearts are willing. So how did Jesus help us find our way on this journey? Well, he took us to the scriptures. It's not only a heart journey and a journey for the ordinary, it's also a scripture journey. Because the truth is, we knew the scriptures. We had, in fact, memorized much of them since we were children, yet we didn't understand them. But Jesus taught us what they really meant, what they were pointing toward. What Jesus was saying to us by taking us through the scriptures was that he wasn't innovating. He wasn't a new cult leader replacing the old gods with new gods. No, Jesus was fulfilling what the ancient and true word of God had always been pointing toward. Jesus came straight from the heart of God, the God who is there, the God who has acted or uh, who had acted in the past in extraordinary ways, the God who was committed to his people, who was working everything out for his purposes, who was patiently working toward this day when he would send his Messiah to redeem his people. The scriptures which tell us all of this, they are the key to this journey. And yet we need Jesus to walk beside us and to open the scriptures to us. And when he does our slow hearts may begin to burn. It's a journey. That's the first thing we learned. It's a heart journey, a journey for ordinary people, a scripture journey. 
But the second thing that we learned is that this journey leads to a table where we find ourselves at home in a new family with the living Jesus himself at the head of this new household. It was at the table that our eyes finally came open and we saw that it was Jesus who had been walking with us. That's why we got up so quickly and we hurried back to Jerusalem. We knew Emmaus wasn't our home anymore. That we belonged with Jesus' followers. Suddenly we, we longed to be with them, his family, our family, with the living Jesus in our midst. Though Jesus walked beside us all along on our journey, opening the scriptures so that our hearts, the hearts of ordinary people, began to burn, it was when Jesus broke the bread that our eyes were finally opened. He had broken bread with us before. Back when he had done that wonderful miracle feeding the 5,000, he had taken bread then, he had blessed it, he had broken it. He had given it to his disciples to distribute to the people. And then again, just several days ago, on, our, on the Thursday before Jesus had died, we were all gathered together with Jesus in the upper room, and Jesus had again taken bread and blessed it and broken it and given it to us. And now, that evening, at the table in Emmaus, he had done it again. At the table, Jesus' table, that's where it all came together for us. That's where we recognized the living Jesus. And so we rushed back to our new family in Jerusalem. And we got there none too soon because as soon as we got there, when we were all together as a family, the living Jesus himself appeared again in our midst and we all recognized him. Food was shared, a family together. The journey leads to a table. That's the second thing we learned. The third lesson, I hope you figured out by now. But it's so obvious, maybe you missed it. It's this. The presence of the living Jesus is what matters most. It's not just about knowing the facts. We had all the facts of his life and ministry, his death and burial, his empty tomb, and the claim that he was risen. But, but the facts by themselves were just cold and lifeless. They were confusing. They wouldn't hold together. Facts by themselves get us only so far on the journey. And it's not just about knowing the scriptures either. We knew the scriptures, but we, we couldn't understand what they were really saying, what they were pointing toward. And, and even when he walked beside us and opened the scriptures up to us, true, our hearts burned, but we didn't recognize him. And so we didn't have what we wanted and what we needed most. The living Jesus. The living Jesus. He's the one we wanted. He's the one that matters most. He's the one who changes everything. The Jesus who is alive. Not just the historical Jesus who lived in the stories we told and the facts we gathered from the past. But the raised Jesus, the living Jesus, the Jesus who could walk with us, 
the Jesus who could eat with us, the Jesus who could make us a family and give us a future. That's the Jesus who transformed our lives. That's the Jesus who is changing the world. He is risen. He is risen indeed. indeed.